Um, today we're going to continue our series on Psalms. I'm going to get right to it because this message is fresh on my heart. And the title of this message um, is Jesus Still Heals. It's kind of an interesting title if you think about it. we're actually doing Psalms chapter 51. Psalm 51, as you know, is one of the more morbid psalms uh, among other psalms. Um, for those without context, David wrote Psalms 51 after, one, after committing one of the most heinous crimes in the Bible. Okay, for those who don't know the story, so what basically happened to David was he, to summarize without going into great details, he basically cheated uh, with one of his best friend's wife. He got her pregnant. But instead of owning up to it and confessing his sins, he instead murdered his best friend. Then he, then he married her, hid everything, and hoped everything was good. But then the prophet Nathan came and confronted David. Okay, so he got called out. Okay, his brokenness is displayed before his eyes. And in the process, his son died because of his sin. Okay, this is a horrific situation, okay? Worse than any daytime drama you see on TV today. There's murder, there's abuse of power, there's adultery, there is deception. It's really, really a terrible story. Now, in this tremendous place of brokenness where David has to face his sin, he wrote Psalms 51. Now, for me, this is actually where David becomes the most relatable. I don't know about you, I have a hard time relating to a mighty king. I've never been a king before. Okay? I have a hard time relating to the giant slayer. Okay? I haven't done that either. But someone who comes face to face with his own mess. He can't hide, he can't run, he can't blame anyone else. That I can relate to. Could you relate to the brokenness David's facing? Perhaps maybe you also cheated on your family and you got found out. But most likely it's not this extreme. Maybe you're just late to work all the time, but you think no one knows until one day your boss calls you up and says, hey, I got to chat with you. You know exactly why he wants to talk to you. Maybe out of nowhere, a brother in Christ comes to you and say, hey, I need to chat with you about the secret sin that you think no one knows about. Or maybe you're growing your business and you've just been struggling. And after a while, you realize the problem is me. It's really within my own heart. Or perhaps it's even more personal. You know, all my life, I have struggled with a deep sense of anger. My parents would tell me, hey, you're a good kid, but you just always have a temper problem. But like a functionally alcoholic, I kind of manage my anger. Does that make sense? I keep it under wraps when there are church people around. Kind of just manage my way out of it. And I never truly dealt with the source of my anger. But you know who does notice my anger? Who does get affected by anger is my family. My kids especially. Several years ago, it was clear as day, I remember I was frustrated over something, I was angry over something, and I kicked the trash can. You ever done that before? Don't, don't have to raise your hand. But it was violent, it was ugly, it was nasty, my kids saw it. And a few weeks ago, my son Nehemiah, he was, still, he was way younger at the time, he got angry, he got upset, and guess what he did? He kicked something. My wife told me it wasn't the trash can, but in my mind, it might as well be the trash can. He kicked it, but it wasn't just a kick. It was a violent kick. And he might have kicked, he should have kicked me in the gut. I probably would have felt better at that time. Because what I saw was that my brokenness is leaving a legacy of anger and frustration in my kids. My sins, my failures clearly before my eyes. 
When we are confronted with devastating truths about ourselves, when you realize you're the problem, you're not as smart as you think you are, when someone tells you you got spinach in your teeth or your flies down, those things could hurt us to the core. It could be a really dark place. I feel like in those times, shame and fear is crouching at the door just ready to pounce on us. But I want to encourage you, in those times, it's also a great opportunity to grow. The truth is every single person on earth at one point or another is going to come face to face with their shame, with their anger, with their brokenness, with their failures. But the difference is what do you do, the decision you make when you come face to face with it. Because there was another king before David, King Saul. It's interesting because King Saul also was confronted by the prophet, Prophet Samuel. And he was confronted with his own sin. Samuel came to Saul and says, you messed up. But look at what was King Saul's reaction. King Saul's reaction was, I basically, I'm paraphrasing, I basically care more about what other people think than repentance. And what happened to King Saul was he descended more into his own guilt, his own shame. He never repented, never grew from it. He became tormented by evil spirits and grew into isolation and madness. Now, by comparison, in my mind at least, David actually committed the worst crime compared to King Saul. But he took a different path. He chose to rise above his shame, his fear. He faced his brokenness. And that is not easy. I don't know about you, man. If I cheated on my family, I murder, I kill somebody, and then my son dies, I don't know if I can ever get up from it. But David did. He rose above his brokenness. When we're faced with our shame, let's choose to be like David and not like Saul. How do we do that? Psalms 51 lays out the outline for us to face our brokenness. I want to break Psalm 51 into four parts. The four steps. The first step is this. We have to believe in a merciful God. Step two, we take responsibility. Step three, we ask for a transformed heart. Step four, we bring our brokenness to Jesus. I want to lay that out there for everyone to see, to give you a context of everything. But let's start in step one. We need to believe in a merciful God. Verse 1 to 2, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. Step one is recognizing in the middle of your mess, you're on thin ice. So you need to make sure the next step you take is on solid foundation. What is not solid foundation is your own righteousness or what you have done in the past. You see, David here was not talking about, well, at least I was a pretty good king, or at least I slayed Goliath. He wasn't mentioning all of that. His foundation was simply this, that God is a merciful God. God is full of mercy and compassion. Now, we have to be very careful here. Don't let familiarity or religion rob you from this crucial point. See, I believe one of Christianity's greatest plague today is we think if we say something enough, we hear enough, it becomes our reality. If that was true, then we who confess that God is love would not be living in fear all day. When we say God's my provider, we wouldn't be dealing with anxiety. The truth is, a lot of times our concept of a God doesn't align with the reality who God is. 
do you truly believe that God's full of mercy? Now, I want to dig a little harder. Do you know people who are full of mercy, who've been given the gift of compassion and mercy? Now, God actually has blessed me with an awesome wife, and one of her gifts is mercy and compassion. And it's interesting, as I got to know her, I realized the people who have been given the gift of mercy, they're wired completely different. They go out their day looking to hand out mercy and compassion to other people. Sometimes even when people aren't even looking for it, I'm like, what are you doing? Because she's so delighted to give out mercy and compassion. Remember when we have our Band of Brother conference, we empower ladies to hand out cookies, trays of cookies to hand, hand out to men as they go in for a classroom to classroom. Do you guys remember that for those who were there? It's kind of the same thing. Like these ladies weren't giving out cookies because they had to. They weren't begrudgingly giving out cookies like the more cookies I give out, the less cookies I have. They weren't thinking that way. They were enjoying themselves handing out cookies. That was their purpose. Same for those who have the gift of compassion. They want to give it out. They delight in giving it out. Now think about it. What kind of God will empower his people with this gift unless he himself is full of mercy and compassion? Now, you know, we live in a culture of self-identify as this. I self-identify as this gender or this race or whatever. You know, the, the only person who can truly self-identify is God because he's the creator. In Exodus 34, we have an opportunity for God to self-identify as he reveals himself to Moses. This is what he says. Of all the things he could say, he begins with this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Then he continues. Think about that for a second. Of all the things that God could lead with, he leads with, I am full of mercy and compassion. That's the God we serve. See, the problem with mankind is we have two extremes. We either don't believe in God's mercy, so we shake in fear of judgment, or we say, God, I don't want your mercy because I am not broken. When you reject God's mercy, all you have left is judgment. But for those who are broken, for those who seize their sins clearly, we come before God and they say, God, I am broken. I need your mercy. He wants to unleash his compassion and mercy on his kids. As a father to young kids, I can't wait to reconcile and embrace my kids when they make a mistake. The problem is when they deny it, when they're rebellious. But then when they come to me with repentant heart, man, I can't wait to hold them and kiss them and snuggle with them. For some of you today, the reason you haven't grown, you haven't went to step two, which is taking responsibility, it's because you don't believe God's merciful. You think if we took responsibility, you are turning yourself into a wrathful God. That's not true. God is merciful. Going to step two. David, recognizing that God is full of mercy and compassion, that David, recognizing that God is good, he took full responsibility. He says, for I recognize my rebellion that haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. David saying, I am owning up to everything. I'm not going to blame my circumstance. I'm not going to blame my parents, my past, my upbringing, my society. I'm not blaming Bathsheba. I'm not blaming Uriah. I am not blaming God. I did this. 
Now, I was talking to a bunch of young people the other day. I was urging them to not make excuses when they mess up or when we mess up. It's not just for young people, it's for all of us. You know, I really struggled with this for a lot of my life, okay? The one particular point, weakness in my life, is when I'm late to something, I always had an excuse, okay? I'm late, oh, this, the reason I'm late is because I ran, uh, I ran to a bad light, a long red light, or I was following someone really slow, or there was traffic. There's always a reason why. It got so bad, it turned, like, there would be times in which I know I'm going to be late to a meeting. I'm already late. So I would pull up behind a really slow car just so in my mind I have a legitimate reason to tell people why I'm late. No joke. It took me decades to finally learn to say this. Forgive me for being late. I should have left earlier. That's it. No more commentary. I'm telling people, I'm telling young people, if you forget something, don't say, oh, I was going to get to it. Well, that's the next thing I'm going to do. No. Say, thank you for reminding me. I forgot. I messed up. I'm going to change. See, this is why owning up, taking responsibility is so important. When you make excuses for yourself, whether you intend to or not, you are preaching to yourself. You're saying over, you're speaking over yourself, saying, I am not empowered to change or to make a difference. The reason you're late, okay, the reason you don't get the task done is because of other people's fault or this event, this circumstance. So what happened is you're, say, you're saying, this is, I, I, I'm not in control. It's not my fault. And as you preach that over yourself enough times, you eventually become a victim and you're, not, you're never empowered to grow. What a wise person does instead is that they take responsibility many times when it's not even really their fault. Because they recognize that if you don't make an excuse, if you own up to it, you are empowering yourself to act differently next time. Do you guys understand this? Years ago, when I used to watch the NBA, there was a playoff game. I believe it was the Orlando Magic. And I didn't care who won, who lost. I just wanted to watch a good game. And the game, my opinion and many people's opinion, basically the Orlando Magic lost the game because of the refs. Bad calls, blah, 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 blah. After the game, the team went to the locker room. They had a little huddle. And when they came back out before the press conference, right, the reporters are just peppering them with questions and baiting them. And what do you think about the refing? Did you feel, feel like you were robbed, blah, blah, blah? One by one, united from the team, I, I believe Doc Rivers was the coach at the time, one by one, they said, no, the refs didn't lose the game. I lost the game. I lost the game. We should have played better. And I was so confused at the time. I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, I felt indignation for them. But I read an article about that later. Basically said the, in their huddle, their coaching staff, they did a wonderful job basically telling them, hey, look, take responsibility. doesn't matter what everyone else done. Take responsibility. They end up winning that series because they felt empowered to own it, to own the win or own the loss. Taking responsibility is kingdom leadership 101. Jesus was the ultimate in taking responsibility for the sins of the world. And he, and because of that, he is the greatest leader of all time. If you want to be a leader, especially in the kingdom of God, you start with taking full responsibility of yourself. Don't even talk about other people. Take responsibility for your own brokenness. Step two, take responsibility. 
Step three, ask for transformation of the heart. From this point on, I believe the Holy Spirit is starting to speak to David prophetically. For David, see into the future, he's starting to talk about the new covenant. Verse seven, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stains of my guilt. And then here's the kicker. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your way to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You see, at this point, Davis, he's recognizing that for him to move on after this horrific incident, for him to truly move on in life, what he needs is not some just behavioral facelift, some external curling uh, of his fleshly desires. What he needs is something way deeper. You see, Judaism has all kind of laws to, to deal with the duties and the discipline, the external acts, right? But Judaism is not alone in that. Every world religion has got some type of laws and regulation. Buddhism has the eightfold path. Islam has the five pillars. Even in the, in the Christian church today, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap, whether it's confession or church attendance or Bible study, rules and regulation. Now, all these activities, what's the point of these activities? They're seeking to answer the questions philosophers has asked since the beginning. The question is this. How do you make a bad person good? How do you transform the heart of violence and lust and anger to compassion, kindness, and selflessness? Even in the world today, we're trying to answer this question. And we realize that education is not the answer. How do you educate a bad heart into a good heart? We realize government or science or economy, none of those things can truly achieve what we truly crave for, what we truly long for, which is the transformation of your heart. But David knew that this mystery is found in God, only in God. So he boldly cries out, he boldly prays, he says, God, renew my heart, remove my stain, create in me not a clean heart, uh, not a clean behavior, but a clean heart. He doesn't want a modified heart, he wants a brand new one. And guess what? God actually heard his prayer. And God answered him 400 years later through the prophet Ezekiel in the exile. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols and I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulation. Similarly, he said through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31, this is my new covenant I will make with the people of Israel, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And of course, the fulfillment of this prayer happened through Jesus Christ about a thousand years later after David. In Romans chapter 2, 
Paul says, you are not a true Jew. In this case, true Jew is the seeds of Abraham. That's who we are. Because you were born of Jewish parents. Good, good news, because I wasn't born Jewish parents. Or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And a true circumcision is not obeying, merely obeying the letter of law. It's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And the person with a changed heart seek praise from God and not from people. Paul continues in Colossians. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you are bearer of Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you are trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And of course, in 2 Corinthians, we all know this verse. What does all this mean? It means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Those in Christ, if you are in Christ, you've been given a clean heart. David's prayer came true, and we are the beneficiaries of the new covenant. God answered his prayer. He's given us a brand new identity. The mystery of God has been solved through Jesus Christ. New desires, new heart. Now, that's the good news. But then you ask the question, but why am I still dealing with this yuckiness, this gross stuff over here? The tricky part is even though we've been given a brand new identity, we need to learn to actually walk it out. We're not used to the new heart. Often we forget about this new identity. Now, this process that we walk it out in the church we call a sanctification. It's a really big term. And truthfully, after being in church my whole life, this, that big term still kind of confuses me. I like to think about it a little differently, or, or not differently, in, in a more simple way. So this is my old phone that I have about four years, okay? Um, my son dropped it, so the screen's cracked. Um, uh, the battery lasts about three and a half hours, and I got to plug it in again to keep it working. And the processor is not very good, so every once in a while it'll heat up, and I'll be in my pocket. I feel like it's burning a hole through my pocket. You might never had that before. The best part about this phone is the lens for the camera is cracked. Okay, so I took the whole lens apart. So don't ever ask me to take a picture with my phone because it's completely blurry. Okay, so this is my old phone. Well, recently my buddy Sean, he gave me a new phone. This new phone's bigger, it's nicer, battery lasts forever, screen's not cracked. Um, good processor, great phone. I'm thankful for this phone. I like the idea of a new phone, okay? This is a true story. I'm not making this up. This really happened. But the truth is, this new phone stayed on my bookshelf for about a week without me even touching it. True story. So I like the idea of the new phone, but I'm really, really used to my old phone. All my apps are in there, all my passwords are on there, my contacts, my calendar, you know. Uh, not only that, I'm used to the brokenness of this phone. Like, I'm used to the crack in my screen. Like, I, I used it for so long, I'm so used to it. But the apps are in a place, like, if I need to find the app, I know exactly where it is. Today, I was trying to put a contact in the new phone. I'm like, where's the contact thing? It just takes me forever to find it. Now, what I should do is just take a day Download all the new apps in the new phone, arrange it, find all the password and do all that stuff to it. Like invest and learn and process the new phone. But I'm too lazy and too unwilling to do that. 
So what happens to this is eventually I, I got enough courage to go to T-Mobile. And for real, I don't like going to phone. I just feel like an idiot whenever I go in there. But they were able to transfer um, my SIM card from my old phone to the new phone. So if you call me today, call me right now, my new phone picks up. However, so my, part of my identity is found in the new phone. Make sense? But my apps are still in my old phone. So do you know what's my solution? No joke. I bring both phones with me everywhere I go. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I go to the Y. And, and I said, that I go to the Y just to read a book, to listen to a book, my Audible. I'm like, wait a second, which Bluetooth do I connect this to again? Like, I need this phone in case my wife calls me, but I need the old phone because my Audible's on it and the password's Sean's. I don't even know what the password is. It's, I mean, it's a mess. When I get out of the car, I'm literally like, which phone do I leave in the car? Which phone do I take with me? So in essence, Sean giving me the new phone has just made my life way more complicated. Someone asked me later, was that a true story or just a good analogy? No, 100% true. I bring two phones with me everywhere I go. You know, the, the pocket that's hot, that's the new phone. I mean, the old phone. The pocket that's cool is my old phone. That's how I know. You guys laugh. It's, it's kind of stupid if you think about it. I was actually kind of embarrassed about I carry two phones with me. I kind of hide one in my backpack so people don't know. But isn't that how we live our Christian life? You've been given a brand new identity. You love the theoretical idea of it, but you're so used to your old ways. You got baggage from the past, old addiction, old way of thinking, old habits, unforgiveness, unprocessed emotion. So even though you've been given a new identity, a good heart, a clean heart, you still go back to your old ways because you have a love-hate, codependent relationship with your old self. We really like the new self, but really are used to the old self. So most Christians do what I do. They bring both hearts with them wherever they go. When you bring both hearts with you, you cannot be truly, fully alive. You're always just limping along in life. And your life is so much more complicated. So what do we do? What time do we get out? 1115 this leads me to the last point. Bring our brokenness to Jesus. Verse 16, you do not desire a sacrifice while I will offer one. You do not want to burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. In the Old Testament, when you sin, the law dictates you need to bring a sin offering. That was required by the law, and the law is good. However, David saw prophetically into the heart of God, into something deeper. It's human nature that we want to make up for our mistakes. That's not a bad thing. Old Testament, it means that you've got to sacrifice an animal. In modern times, people will try to do different things. Confession, admitting your sin, do good works, accountability groups. Uh, if you broke something or stole something, reparations, that stuff is good. I'm not saying that's bad. But David is saying what God really requires of us, he wants us to bring him our brokenness, our broken hearts, our broken spirit. Now, this is incredible if you really think about it. Because I was digging into the word brokenness, okay? I was like, what do you mean by brokenness? This is like this, this descriptive artistic term. So I looked up what brokenness means, the Hebrew, and like how it's used in the Bible, other places used in the Bible. And you know what other place, the first place I saw that was used was when Moses came off Mount Sinai carrying the tablets the first time. 
He saw the golden calf and the Israelites committing sins against God. He took the tablets and he broke it at the foot of the mountain. This is a literal brokenness, a true brokenness. And it hit me so hard. I'm like, God, do you really want us to bring our trash, broken, main, uh, messed up heart to you? And God says, yes. I don't care how gross, how nasty, how damaged it's been by sin. Bring it to me. Bring the center of your shame to me. This is the sacrifice I really want. You see, we're so unfamiliar with this because in the church, we're taught to bring our best side, our best face. But God's saying, no, I want you to bring your worst side to me. Now, don't confuse what I'm saying. I'm not saying flaunt, bring your brokenness and flaunt it or be prideful of it. No, he's saying a broken and contrite heart. The word contrite means collapsing upon itself. There's a bowing down. There's a degree of, oh, I am so sorry. I cannot even fix myself. I am broken. There's a deep humility. Now, you ask the question, why do we bring our brokenness to God? So he can condemn us? So he can judge us? So he can make fun of us? Because that's often what we get when we bring our brokenness to other people, right? They reject us. Or maybe best case scenario, he'll feel sorry for us. A lot of times we want to do it because we don't want people to feel sorry for us. No, that's not the reason why God wants to bring our brokenness to him. God wants us to bring our brokenness because Jesus is still our healer. I want that to resonate deeply in you because when I was preparing this message, it hit me so hard. The Holy Spirit said to me, you don't believe Jesus heals anymore. You don't believe Jesus heals your heart anymore. That's why you don't bring your brokenness to him. Why did Jesus come to earth? You ask the average Christian on the street, they'll say, well, so we can go to heaven and all that good stuff. Now, that's a part of it. But let's go to his own words. When Jesus began his ministry, he flipped to Isaiah before the synagogue, before everyone. His declaration of why I'm here, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and sight for the blind and set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord. Jesus also said this. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I come so that you may have life. Well, they might have life and have it to the full. If you don't believe Jesus came to heal you or that he can heal you, you will never truly bring your brokenness to him. If you really understand, that's the context of why he came. Look through the scripture. You see stories after stories of people bringing their brokenness to Jesus. Zacchaeus climbing that tree, bringing his brokenness to Jesus. The woman bleeding, plowing through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak because she's bringing her brokenness to Jesus. Over and over again, he's inviting people for their brokenness. But one story that hits me harder than anyone else is the woman with the alabaster jar. Luke chapter seven, the woman in that town who lived a sinful life, in that context she was probably a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who would invite him saw this, he said to himself, this man or prophet, he would know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. I'll be real here. If I'm in that room right there, 
and I see a woman of ill repute doing that, lavishing that onto Jesus, a man of God, I would be a little bit freaked out. It's weird to me. But Jesus does weird things because he's not like us. Therefore, I tell her, her her many sins, verse 48, has been forgiven. Her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven loves little. Then she said to her, your sins are forgiven. And I love in Matthew, Jesus said, in a different version of the story, Jesus said, truly I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He's honoring her because she's doing exactly what he came to do, to heal our hearts. You know the alabaster jar of perfume? We're told it's very expensive. His disciples are like, we should have sold that and gave money to the poor. I was like, how expensive is it? I looked it up. It's about worth one year's salary. People say it's about $60,000. I was like, whoa, that changed the context. $60,000 worth of perfume. And where do you think she made that money to do that? But she poured this perfume all over her. She brought her brokenness to Jesus. She wet his feet with her tears, those same tears that has wept over her shames and her fear. But she brought her brokenness to Jesus. She wiped his feet with her hair, the same hair that is known as the woman's glory, who she might have given to many men. But now she brings it to Jesus because she brought her brokenness to Jesus. If you struggle with pornography, Bring the lustful heart to Jesus as you are. If you're insecure, bring your worst fears to him. If you are angry, bring that bitter, angry, hateful heart to Jesus. He can heal you. Let his altar of worship be littered with our brokenness, for Jesus still heals today. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But there is another reason why we don't bring our brokenness to Jesus. It's because we don't mind managing our brokenness, our sins. Instead of dealing with it directly, facing our weakness head on, which is painful, which is scary, like functionally alcoholics, we just manage our addiction and manage our pains. Many of us have high capacity. We're good at multitasking. So we think we just mask our brokenness. We do it in a way that most people don't really know is there. We pretend everything is okay and we put up a nice show for people. Meanwhile, those who are closest to us, our family, our kids, our wives, our husbands, experience the wake of our brokenness and we pass those legacy on to them abandonment, anger, or lust. Eventually, what's going to happen is your brokenness will leak out, your career will suffer, your ministry will suffer, brokenness, your relationship, and everything you're doing because you can only pretend for so long. But what happened is God, in his mercy, he sees you living not in the abundant life, but in, this broke, in the management of this brokenness. And he says, that's not a life I came to give him. That's not the life I came to give my daughter. He sees you limping through your life, and he's saying, no more. So he sent you a gift. He sends people, circumstances, maybe bankruptcy, health issues, maybe a ministerial collapse, whatever it is, to wake you up. 
He might have sent a Nathan or a Samuel your way to tell you, stop managing your brokenness, bring it to me. You see, for years I struggled with, <laughs> I have lots of things I struggle with, as you learn. <laughs> um, but one of my biggest struggles with rejection. Since I was a kid, I always just uh, dealt with rejecting other people and feeling rejected. You know, and from my perspective, I feel like I've just managed it pretty good. I'm like a pretty good Christian. Every once in a while, I get triggered. That's my perspective. But the truth is I left a wake of broken relationship all around me because of that heart of condemnation and rejection. When I moved to Crown Point, God started to turn up the heat on me. And for some of you, the Lord is starting to crank that heat up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. This rejection in my heart grew stronger and stronger and stronger. I would be hanging out with a group of people, a group of friends, and all of a sudden, I would feel like everyone's condescending, everyone's against me. And I would become a jerk because I would reject them back. Because if you deal with rejection, you reject people before they reject you. So you preemptively start to push people away. And the Lord sent me a Nathan, he sent me a Samuel in the form of Pastor Marion. You think she's all nice, but when she gets prophetic, man, it's like, it goes right in there. She called me out. She said to me, she says, the devil has a nose ring on you, a nose ring. And whenever he wants, he come and just yanks you around. You know, like, you know, like uh, in, the, in the more agricultural days, they put a nose ring on like oxens. Because you can't move an oxen. It's like 10 times your weight. Try to go and shove them one way, it won't move. So they put a nose ring on an oxen. Because it's a sensitive point. When you start yanking that nose ring, it hurts. So the oxen has to follow you. Does that make sense? So a little boy can guide an oxen around because it has the nose ring. And she came and she said to me, she said, you have a nose ring by the devil. Whenever he wants, he comes and he yanks you. And then you fall into this rejection. It hit me so hard. Because I realized I've been managing my rejection my whole life. So that day... I was broken. I finally got desperate. I went to God and asked for help. I said to the Lord, I said, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this rejection thing destroying all my relationships. I can't move on unless you heal me. So I said, I said, God, I said, Lord, I'm not getting out. I'm not getting up from this floor until you meet me. I made a determination. I said, I'm not getting out. So I stay. I stay on the floor. I cry out and I ask for healing. And I'm not sure how long it took, but in tears and in pain, the Lord brought back a memory to me. Back in middle school, I was, um, whatever. I, there was a bunch of kids who made fun of me, whatever. But there was this memory in the school bus. Now, I was the kid who always sat right behind the bus driver because I just wanted to be left alone. Get on the bus, get off the bus, that's all I want. But perpetually, there would be these kids who sat in the very back of the bus tormenting me. And I felt they were just lobbing these insults like grenades. They're just lobbing that over the bus at me, calling me names, who I am, blah, blah, blah. I totally forgot about this. The Lord brought this memory back to me. Clear as day, I saw myself in that moment. And there was one moment when I was so angry. I even remember the intersection. It was so clear as day. I said to myself, I vowed, I said, I will destroy them. I reject them. I will be better than them. I will show them one day 
I will be better than them. I made a vow to align myself with the devil in hatred and rejection. And ever since then, the devil came in, had access, okay, to lock my heart up in bitterness and rejection. So in that moment, it was crazy. In tears, I'm like, I totally forgot about this memory. But in that moment, I asked for forgiveness. I forgave those kids, whoever they are. I forgave myself and I released them. I asked God, forgive me. And I forgave myself for all those years. Now, the truth is I still had to walk this out. And there were other moments of rejection. I had to bring my brokenness back to Jesus. It wasn't a one-time thing. But from that day forward, I felt like there was an unlocking of my spirit. There was a lock that got unlocked in my heart. I felt the weight of the world fall off my shoulders. And from then on, I could walk again in freedom. Jesus still heals today. Listen, what is our legacy to the next generation, to our kids? A church that doesn't believe that Jesus still heals today is a church that will settle for legalism and works and what we can accomplish on our own strength. And I don't know about you, but I'm not passing that legacy off to our kids. Our generation, this current generation is looking for someone who truly will heal them. Are we living that out? And do you know how you can live it out? It's because there's so much brokenness in the body of Christ right now. And we all just manage our pain. We pretend it's not there. We have blind spots. Everyone else knows about it except for you. You think you're managing it so well, but you talk to the people around you, everyone knows, oh man, they get a little angry, they get a little bitter, or they get a little insecure. But we ourselves is refusing to look in the mirror and face our own brokenness. But God in his mercy brings us a Nathan or a Samuel. In this moment, we bring our brokenness to Jesus. I want to even encourage you today to see the men and women of God not as marked by great achievements or accomplishments or talents, but that you become a man or a woman of God because you have been healed by Jesus. I look at the role of our, our elders and pastors. I look at Jerry and Terry or Brent and Jocelyn or even the people in the Bible. You know what makes them men and women of God? It's because they're so talented, they're so tall, they're so bald, they're so good looking. Those are all true, but that's not why. It's because they've been healed by Jesus, a true touch of God. Stop aspiring to do great things, but aspire to be healed by Jesus. This is so passionate in my heart because more and more the Lord showed me my own brokenness and those who are around us. We have stopped believing that Jesus still heals today. Instead, we focus on our work or our business or our ministry, doing stuff. Instead, bring our brokenness to Jesus. Hey, I'm tired of just talk. I'm tired of playing this church game. I'm ready to believe in the power that Jesus still heals. Amen? Amen. I want to pray for you this morning. If it really resonates in your heart, the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now, saying you don't believe anymore, or that you want to bring your brokenness to Jesus, I want to ask you to stand. I want to pray for you.
And afterwards, there will be pastors and elders up in, the, up in front. If you want more, deeper ministry, I encourage you to come up. We'd love to pray for you. But seriously, if you really, you don't have to stand if you don't want to. This is not like a, everyone stand up and cheer. If you truly believe in your heart, you're saying, I don't believe Jesus heals anymore. I want to once again believe. I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to ask God together to bring our brokenness to him. Father, we're tired of playing church. We're tired of just doing the song and dance. We're tired of just wandering around the mountain over and over and over again. Managing our sins, managing our hurts. We're tired of that, God. So even now, I just pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that will you help us bring our brokenness to you. Give us the gift of desperation. Once and for all, we can move on. And you have given us the key. It's Jesus Christ. And we believe you heal us even today. And Father, I pray for my brothers. I pray for my sisters. That even now you will touch us in our deepest core. In the deepest part of our shame. That we will bring our brokenness to you. So that we can be known. Not as men and women who have great talent, great ability, great discipline but people who has been marked by the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.